Well, Pastor Brad already gave us a little bit of an announcement on, or, or let us know that Ben Davidson's going to share with us. And I have to honestly say that until you kind of did your intro last service, I didn't know the connections were so thorough. I just thought you were a guy that was kind of in our pastoral cluster. So I'm really happy to have somebody who's really connected with our church sharing, sharing with us today. So give him a hand. <laughs> Well, it is good to be with you. Um, my name is Ben Davidson. I serve as the executive pastor at Bethany Community Church in, in Washington. As Chris mentioned, I have a lot of connections here uh, with First. Um, first of all, I, I found a wife here. Um, some of you might be familiar with the name Landwehr. I, I uh, stole Casey Landwehr from your midst. And uh, uh, her parents, Denny and Debbie Landwehr, you may be familiar with as well. Um, but I've been married to Casey for 17 years now, so it was 17 years ago this last August that I stood on this stage and said, I do. Uh, best decision ever made, besides following Christ, uh, was uh, marrying Casey. Um, also, another uh, connection uh, we have is that Casey and I then went in the mission field and worked on college campuses in uh, Central Illinois area, and First Baptist was a part of supporting us and uh, great prayer and financial support there. And then also just the connection that we have as of November 17th, right, as uh, a storm came through not only Pekin and East Peoria, but uh, the community that I live in, in in Washington, and we've all been navigating um, the after effects of that um, as well. So uh, Casey and I have four kids, uh, Avery and Kate, our two boys, are, are 14 and 12, and Addie and Sadie are our two girls, and they are 10 and 5. And so we keep pretty busy at our, our house, but it's a, a joy uh, to shepherd their hearts and be entrusted with, with uh, the shepherding of our kids. Uh, but I'm glad to be here uh, with you today. Um, why don't I pray for us as we begin to, to study God's Word together. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you that it has answers for us, and we ask for your help now as, as we look at your Word. We understand that our, our minds are, are feeble, but you've given us your Holy Spirit to help illuminate the Word to us. And so we ask for your help as we look at your Word. May it change us and deepen our love relationship with you. We pray all this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have a, a Bible or some type of mobile device of some kind, uh, if you can turn to Romans 12 or, or tap on Romans 12, uh, verses 1, 1 and 2, that's the text we'll be in today. And, uh, you know, if you're a, a note taker, because the Bible says, blessed are the note takers, um, the title of this sermon is, Is It Worth It? The Bible doesn't really say that, by the way. Uh, but the title of our sermon is, Is It Worth It? It'll be from Romans 12, 1, 1 and 2. I'm going to create a new word here today for us. Uh, my wife, who's an English major, cringes every time I would say this, but um, uh, the word is pedestalize. I believe in our culture today that we have a great temptation to pedestalize people, whether that's a, a great athlete, an actor, um, the rich, the famous. And, and we can, as Christians, those of us who are in this room that would say that, yes, I, I identify myself with Christ, we can shake our finger at those, you know, we don't, we don't pedestalize people, we're, we're Christians. Um, but I think we do, don't we? I, I think there's a, a great temptation um, for us to pedestalize um, especially other believers, those, uh, those saints that we'd say, boy, they've done, done, quote, great things for God, haven't they? And boy, I, I, if I ever got in that position, I hope I'd be able to do such great things for God. And maybe it's the person that uh, has, you've heard that they, they give half of their income to, to world missions, or it's the, the missionary from the States that, 
that uh, sells all they have so they can go work in an orphanage in a, in a closed country. Or maybe a little bit more closer to home, maybe it's the husband that takes a lower-paying job so he can spend more time uh, with his wife and with his children. I heard John Piper say this of the, of the churches of Macedonia, uh, commended in 1 Corinthians for the generosity. He gives this, um, this statement that they, they had severe affliction plus extreme poverty and it caused abundant joy and a wealth of generosity. Now think about that. Personalize that in your life. You have severe affliction. You're experiencing severe poverty. And it causes abundant joy and a wealth of generosity. What? Boy, the churches of Mason don't. We should put them up on a pedestal, right? What great people were in that church and we often say things like, I don't know if that could be me. Oh, I hope I would re- respond in that way if, if God would put me in that situation. Or if God called me to go to the far reaches of the earth, well, I hope I would respond. I'm just not sure that I would. But the reality is those people that we have pedestalized are just like you and just like me. They're just like you and they're just like me. But why do we see them as different? Why do we put them up on that, on that pedestal? Maybe the issue isn't just how great they are. Maybe the issue is more with our own hearts. I would say that our issue is more that we don't remember the truths of the gospel. We don't remember the far-reaching effects of the gospel in our lives and its implications. And so we have a wrong response. To the gospel. I think if you look at the bottom line, oftentimes I don't want to be a living sacrifice for God. I can be satisfied, and, and dare I say we can be satisfied with the status quo, kind of living what I call buffet Christianity. We look at Christianity, and we see the buffet out there, and yeah, I'd like a little bit of that because I, I like that, and oh, that looks like fun. Yeah, I'll do that. And that over there, no, it's like the peas and the carrots. I'm not going to go there. I want what I want. I'm good where I am. But if we are growing in a right understanding of the gospel and remembering the gospel, gospel will have a right response. We will be that living sacrifice. We'll walk the road of faith. So we have a question before us this morning. Is what is it going to be? Is it worth it? Are we going to respond to the gospel and be a living sacrifice? So you might have open to Romans 12, 1 and 2. Uh, Paul is writing to the church in Rome here, obviously. That's the name Romans. Uh, and the church is filled with both Gentiles and Jews who are coming together in their new faith in Jesus Christ. And they're trying to get along. These two cultures have kind of collided a bit. And so Paul writes this letter and conveniently writes it in two parts. If you don't know an outline of the book of Romans, here you go. 1 through 11, chapters 1 through 11. Chapters 12 through 16. 1 through 11, a theology of the gospel. What is the gospel? 12 through 16, how to live it out. A theology of the gospel, 1 through 11, 12 through 16, how to live it out. So here we are right in the apex of that division. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Making this shift here. One could say the two verses we're looking at today are the context in which the exhortations, the theology of 1 through 11, are being lived out in 12 through 16. 
So let me read this for us. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So as we approach this passage, I'm, I'm hoping you feel a little bit uncomfortable, just as I feel uncomfortable even teaching from this passage. I hope you're shifting your seat a little bit, and here's why. And here's my first point of two today. This is a radical request. This is a radical request. Paul starts off here, and he says, I appeal to you. Now, this appeal that Paul is giving is somewhere between a command and just this deep, deep desire for the church to respond to what he's about to say. So imagine a parent who's trying to, to explain or, or tell a child of theirs to, to not conform to the patterns of this world, to not accept um, the temptations of this world. They don't just say, hey, don't do those things. Okay, good. There's this longing inside that parent, right? Oh, how I long for you, son and daughter, to not be trapped by the things of this world. Oh, don't do these things. You won't find pleasure there. And that's what Paul is saying to the church here. I appeal to you, brothers. Oh, how I long for you to understand these first 11 chapters of what I've written. And how I long for you to live this out into your lives. So I appeal to you, brothers. Brothers, so he's appealing to believers in Jesus Christ. Now, if you are not yet a follower of Christ, let me, let me tell you, hey, stay with us. There is so much for you in this. And first and foremost, let me tell you what's for you on this. It's the gospel. My hope is that if anyone is in here who has not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, they would understand that today, simply understanding there is a God who is holy and has created you. And he created man, and yet we went our own way, and, and, and we sinned, and, and therefore deserve to be punished for that sin. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God, man, Jesus. Jesus came to pay the penalty that you justly deserve to pay yourself. So we respond. God, man, Jesus, response. We can respond in faith, believing that his death on the cross is enough to pay for my sin. And in repentance, moving my orientation from sin to following him. It doesn't mean you'll be perfect, but your orientation is no longer, I want to run after sin. I want to run after you. God, man, Jesus, response. So if you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, this passage is for you. But if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, let me tell you, this passage is for you as well. As Paul is pleading with the Roman church, and with us to consider a few things here in this radical request. First, the part of this radical request is to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Or some versions of the Bible say offer your bodies or, or give of your bodies. So the thought here is that this is a full-out living sacrifice. Not just bodies like our physical makeup. But Paul is saying to the Roman church and to us to offer your hearts Offer your minds, offer your will, your words, your deeds, your eyes, your ears, your hands, your feet, your desires, your goals, everything of who you are, offer it as a living sacrifice. What a radical request. And offer them as, as holy and acceptable to God, it says here in the passage. 
It's your spiritual worship. He goes on this radical request to say, and don't be conformed to this world. No longer be in the pattern of this world. Don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world. One commentator says this, the believer's heavenly calling includes residence in this world among sinful men where he is to show forth the praises of him and be called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. He is in the world for witness, but not for conformity to that which is a passing phenomenon. Be transformed. Have a renewed mind so we'll be able to test and discern what the will of God is. See, the world presses in on us on every side. In Galatians 4.3, it says that we are enslaved to those things that pressed in on us on every side. But now, in our new life in Christ, we need to fight off those things that press in on us, that say, act like this, wear this, handle your finances like this, have a house like this, raise your children like this, work like this, have a car like this, think like this, vote like this, be like this. And Paul says clearly, don't be conformed. Be transformed. This is a radical request. We're being pressed in on every side. And Paul says, do not be conformed. Think of a table out here and maybe call it an altar. And God is calling us through Paul's writing here to lay down on that altar. Everything, all that we are, to lay down on that altar. And yet we're so tempted to say, okay, I'll lay down for a bit, but if there's... Oh, I like that over there. I'll get up off this altar. Oh, yeah, I'll, okay, I'll go back and lay down for a while. Oh, I like that over there. We're being pressed in on so many sides, and we have this radical request to be a living sacrifice. So how are we doing with this? Are we presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice? Are we allowing the world to influence us? How are we allowing the world to influ- influence us? Are we being transformed daily into his likeness? We all struggle with this kind of request. It it almost feels like Paul is saying to me, Ben, I want you to grow hair, make an NBA team, and win the slam dunk contest. That's just not going to happen. That's what it feels like, this radical request. But thankfully, it's not just a radical request. And here's my second point for this morning. It's a reasonable request. Yes, this is a radical request, but it is a reasonable request. We look back at our passage here in Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. That's why we know it's a reasonable request. It's by the mercy of God that we live out this radical request. We see the word therefore there in verse 1. I appeal to you. Therefore, brothers, and you Bible scholars know, right, whenever you see a therefore, you ask yourself, what's the therefore, therefore? Well, as I said in the introduction, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, what's he saying? In light of what I just wrote about, and what did he just write about? What were chapters 1 through 11 about? The gospel. In light of 11 chapters of glorious gospel theology, therefore... I appeal to you, brothers, to be a living sacrifice. I don't just say, hey, shape up, will you guys? You Jews, you Gentiles, you're not getting along, shape it up, all right? I wanna, when I write to you again, I want to see you got kind of cleaned up here in the Roman church. He says, no, understand the gospel afresh. 
It's not just for the day of your salvation. It's for every day as a believer in Jesus Christ. Understand the gospel afresh here, church. So, therefore, in light of 11 chapters of glorious gospel theology, I appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What the apostle is saying that is in light of the truth, truths shared up to this point in the first 11 chapters, one commentator says, a voluntary and enthusiastic response of gratitude is required. Because of his grace, we see Romans 2, 4. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Because of his grace, we see God's love. In Romans 5, verse 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Because of his grace, we see God's patience. In chapter 9, verse 22 of Romans, he has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. His grace shows us, and all these verses are from Romans, chapter 1, verse 7, he will give us eternal life. 3.24, we're justified by his grace as a gift, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 5.15, the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. 5.20, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. 6.14, since you are not under law, but you are under grace. 11.6, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. We are justified by his grace as a gift, Romans 3.24. Paul continues his focus on the gospel, not just by referring back to those 11 chapters, but also giving us that reminder, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. See, before Christ, now catch this, before Christ, one sacrifices in order to obtain mercy or favor from God. I try to earn that, right? After becoming a follower of Christ, one sacrifices because they have already obtained mercy and favor from God. The believer in Christ has been shown mercy. That mercy is shown through God imputing righteousness in to the believer. See, as I stood before God before I placed my faith in Christ, he saw a wretched sinner in my position before him. But then I made that decision of faith and repentance to believe in him. And you know what happened? Right here. Watch this. That happened. My wretchedness and my standing as a sinner before God was placed upon Jesus and his righteousness was imputed to me. And I stand before God in my position before him as righteous. Do I still struggle in my condition to live out righteousness? Oh, yes. Ask my wife. But in my standing before him as a believer in Christ, I can stand before You know who God sees? Jesus, he sees his son. So as I respond to this seemingly radical request, sounds pretty reasonable, doesn't it? In light of what he's done for me through the cross. This is a radical request, yes, but it is a reasonable request as well. Greg Gilbert in his book, What is the Gospel, says that this exchange was to secure for us a righteous verdict from God the judge rather than a guilty one. So if we'd play back the DVD of your life in this last week and you'd say, 
Yes, if I stand before God, based on my own record of the DVD of my life for the last week, based on my own record, yes, I am, you can look at my account, I am ready to be seen as righteous. If you look at the last week of my life, I'm not ready to be seen as righteous. But because of God's great mercy, because of that great exchange, I can look back at the DVD of my life the last week and say, I'm forgiven. God, thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you. Will you forgive me? Thank you for your forgiveness. And I'm seen as righteous before you. My account brings guilt, but Christ took that guilt for me. We are relying on mercy and on the promise of that imputed righteousness. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. There's a song that we've sung at Bethany Community Church. I don't know if you sing it here or not. It's called Before the Throne of God Above. Listen to these lyrics and don't miss this. Because the sinless Savior died... My sinful soul was counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Another great hymn that you've, I'm sure you've sung here, It Is Well With My Soul. Horatio Spafford wrote that hymn. There's a lot of great history there. I hope you will look at that. Um, but I, I grew up in the church, and so I, you know, I would sing these hymns, and sometimes I'd be singing the words, but kind of looking at the lights, and, oh, there's a light out there, and, you know, kind of not paying attention. And I started paying attention to the songs that I was singing as I took my faith more seriously, and there's that one part of it as well as my soul. It's, uh, Spafford writes, My sin, oh, the bliss of that glorious thought. And if you just stop right there, it's like, wait, what's he saying there? My sin, it's a glorious thought. My sin is a glorious thought. What is he saying there? But you have to keep going, right? My sin, oh, the bliss of that glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. It is well, it is well with my soul. Now, this is conjecture here. I don't know this set of Horatio Spafford as he wrote this hymn, but I kind of imagine him writing and him going, my sin. And then just this explosion of gospel theology goes off in his mind. And he writes... My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. And he's just kind of exploding with fireworks of, oh, what a glorious thought what's happened to my sin. Okay, let me focus here. Second line. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Oh, it is well. It is well with my soul. Oh, what a glorious thought as Spafford wrote that. So if we present ourselves as a living sacrifice, it's by the mercy of God and his great grace that he's shown us through the gospel. And it says this is your spiritual act of worship, right? And the rest of this path, this is, this is what you do. Now, who has a King James Version? What's it say there? It's your reasonable service. Well, you can understand why the translation of the King James said that, right? It's the Greek word logikos, where we get our word, English word for logic from. It's your logical service. In light of the gospel, being a living sacrifice, yeah, it sounds radical, and it is radical, but it kind of just makes sense. It's reasonable. It is a logical thought for us to be a living sacrifice. And it's by his grace that we do that. Now, the passage says here, 
but not be conformed to the world in verse 2, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And I believe a practical application for us to be that living sacrifice, to live out this radical and reasonable request, is to keep renewing our minds. Now, in one sense, I'm preaching to the choir here because you're here on a Sunday morning and you're inviting God's word and other people to speak into your life to have your mind renewed. But let me encourage us to continue in that way of renewing our minds so that we can live out this radical and reasonable request. We see Philippians 2, the end of verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We are not passive in this matter of being a living sacrifice. We are active in renewing our minds to be a living sacrifice. So in his book, Stuart Scott, uh, the book called The Exemplary Husband, he writes this, Even though God gets all the credit for our growth to his glory, right? He has chosen to work along with the word and our efforts to see our minds renewed. We see that in passages like Psalm 119, 9 through 11. This is an active passage of scripture. Think of the activity that's going on here as I read this. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. See the activity there? I'm grasping to your commandments. I've stored your word in my heart. Help me to guard my life according to your word. See, we have no hope of living out this radical request. We have no hope without the renewing of our minds, without implanting God's word into our head, into our hearts. If we're going to be a living sacrifice, if we're going to lay down on this altar, we don't just want to like kind of lay our hands across our bellies and say, well, I hope this works out. We want to grab a hold of that altar and say, I'm going to keep myself, God, by your grace and by your mercy, I'm going to pin myself to this altar with all my strength and pull myself to the altar and renew my mind and want your word to be implanted in my heart to want others to come around me to help me to do that. Scott goes on to say in that book that the renew of our minds can happen only as God's word dwells in us. We must have God's word consistently before us and purposefully implanted in our minds. We think of Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. So, in light of a solid understanding of gospel theology, 1 through 11 of Romans, we should see Christian ethics abounding, shouldn't we? Now, if we see outlandish disobedience to God's commands, what should we see? A wrong theology and thinking about the gospel. Think about a time in this last week where you were, you were sinning. I'm guessing you have one, right? Pick one. What was going on in your heart at that point? Now, you might not have thought this consciously, but I'm going I'm I'm to guess, okay, there was something wrong with your gospel theology at that point. Because at one point, you and I believed this sin is going to be better than what's offered to me in the gospel. I see God's patience. I see his kindness. I see eternal life. I see an abundant life here on earth. But I don't really believe that. I'm going to sin. I'm going to find it my own way. 
we need to have a right understanding of the gospel. We need to renew our minds in the gospel. Remember, the gospel is not just for the day of your salvation, but it's for every moment that you breathe. You need the gospel, and I need the gospel. Let me end with this. I saw an acquaintance of mine not too long ago. I said, Sean, how you doing? And what was I expecting back? Fine. How are you? Fine. Great. How are the kids? Great. How are your kids? Fine. The weather's been nice. Yep, it's going to turn. Yep. How about those cardinals? Yep. Oh, sorry about those cubs. Yep. That's our typical exchange. We ask, how are you? Right? I said, Sean, how you doing? You know what he said? Oh, Ben. Just trying to live out a radical life of obedience to God. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> sure. I was expecting fine. I wasn't expecting that depth of an answer. Let me ask you this, First Baptist Church. What would it be like if you greeted each other like that? If someone asks you after the service, hey, how, how are you doing? Oh, my wife and I or my husband and I or my kids or, you know, I, or me, just myself, I'm single. I'm just trying to live a life of radical obedience to God. What would it be like if that's the way we interacted with each other as believers? Let me encourage you to do this. After service today, as we dismiss, would you find someone? It can be someone you live with. might just be a friend that you work with in children's ministry or, or wherever. Find someone here in your First Baptist family and say, hey, would you pray for me that I would be a living sacrifice this week? Would you pray for me that I would grip the altar and hold on for dear life? knowing that the gospel is where I find the greatest joy. It's not in the passing pleasures of sin. It's not in the pressures of this world. And if you do that next week and you come back, hey, how would it go? Oh, it was great. But don't pedestalize me. I'm just like you. We're all in need of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are people in deep need, aren't we? Uh, You see that in us, Lord. And I I trust I can pray that for this room, that we are in people in deep need. Would you allow us to have a right understanding of the gospel, not only in this moment, God, but help us to remember a right understanding of the gospel as we leave here today. We were once your enemies, but now we're seated at your table. So may we do great things for you and for your glory. And if someone would ever say, wow, I could never do that, May we respond that we're just doing what's reasonable in light of who you are and what you've done for us. We pray all this in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ben. So this morning, uh, let's, let's stand. And let me just give you a last challenge here. Let's, let's pedestalize Jesus. I like that word. I actually looked it up, and I think it does exist in the Urban Dictionary, so... Good, good stuff. So let's pedestalize Jesus today even as we radically obey him in his proclamation to others. Amen? Amen. Go on, First Baptist. Represent Jesus. <laughs>